Hello, I am Philip Kennedy. Thank you for downloading this podcast of the NYU Abu Dhabi Institute. We hope you enjoy listening to this. For more information about our programs, please visit www.nyuad.nyu.edu slash institute. Uh, as Narita said, I've had the pleasure of uh, being in charge of this project for the last uh, 20 years and a little bit more. We opened it actually on the 20th of May in 1999. So on the 20th of May now, we will have a 20 years anniversary for the official opening. Uh, just to tell you where Norway is, I guess uh, some of you know, some of you might think it's uh, up north somewhere. Some of you may think that it's Sweden to the, to the right, and Finland and Russia and Great Britain and Denmark as our neighboring countries. So I would just like to tell you where you are at the very beginning. Uh, and a little bit about Norway and Stavanger, the city I come from. Uh, I'll just use this map to show you immediately how large the offshore areas, which are probably areas for oil and gas production in Norway, how large they are. That's the big area with the white dotted line, but the green areas are the areas which are open, possibly open to exploitation and where the development goes on now. Uh, Norway, population 5.2 million, rather small country in population, but big in size. I don't know if 385,000 square kilometers means so much to you, but you can see it here. And my point here is that the offshore area is six times bigger than onshore. I come back to that when it comes to how, how we went into the ocean together with Denmark and, and Great Britain. Uh, Norway is also special because we are energy self-sufficient based on hydroelectric power. So why do we have the oil in addition? You know, it's just fantastic. We, all, all electricity, we are self-sufficient. And today there are 200,000 petroleum-related jobs. Not directly, I'll come back to that, but 200,000 related jobs to petroleum. Stavanger is the fourth largest city in uh, Norway. Population of 130,000, and it's called the oil capital of Norway. And you can see it on the map. Yeah, as Nelida just mentioned, we had the honor of having the king coming to open the museum on the 20th of May, 1999. Uh, so both the king and I have become 20 years older. Uh, you see some people in the background uh, because this was a, a nice day in May and we didn't expect so many people to come outside the museum, but there are 2,500 workers here on this day. And that was quite special. I was, I was scared when I heard they were coming because the reason they came was they had a demonstration concerning the government policy towards the shipyards. And we have a big shipyard just across the bay here in Stavanger. And they wanted to use our opening, and I was quite angry with that. <laughs> they wanted to use our opening ceremony with the king to march. You see there's a bridge behind there. They came marching one hour before the opening, and they marched in with their banners, and they took place, and you know, it was just fantastic because we had 2,500 oil workers attending our opening of the museum. Okay, uh, this speech, and I'm a little bit unsure, you have to 
check Linda on the time because I, I'm, I haven't actually run through it, but finished on Saturday. I will do three things. Uh, I will shortly tell you about Norway's oil and gas history. Then I will speak about what I've called the Petroleum Museum narrative. And then at the end, a little bit about what we call the industrial heritage project. But there's a lot of pictures here, a few bullet points, and I try to flow through it, okay? And of course, the Ecofisk field, which is the main picture for this lecture. Uh, this picture is taken maybe sometimes in the 80s, the first field discovered in Norway. Okay, let's start with the oil and gas history. Uh, and these are my opening statements, just to tell you, just to warn you what kind of story this is, because it is a unique story of vision, of resource management, of technology, technological development, of fiscal instruments, of how much Norway today delivers to the world market, of distribution of welfare, and at the end, the quite sensational invention of the Petroleum Fund. Actually, this map I made last week because I, I didn't know where the starting point should be. Uh, and this map says something about the situation 1959, early 60s, because nobody in Norway had ever thought there were going to be oil or gas under the seabed in the North Sea. But some people had the idea that when they discovered gas, especially gas outside the Netherlands in the Groningen field, which I've put on the map here for you, uh, maybe there will be some geological resources stretching further north. So the question was, would the, the petroleum geology go further north? And on commission from the Ministry of Foreign Affairs, there had been done an assessment, which I say there was very pessimistic. So the Norwegian Geological Survey in 1958 actually said that the chances that we should find oil and gas under the bed, seabed of the North Sea is very little. You can practically look away from it. That was the situation in around 1960. But then some Americans, and you know, of course, the Phillips Petroleum Company, which was the name at that time, they had also observed this fact that, okay, Groningen, the North Sea, the geology is much the same. So they came over, they made their allegations or judgments, and it resulted in a letter to the Norwegian state where Phyllis Petroleum asked for a sole license for the whole sector of Norway. We asked that the North Sea, which fell under Norwegian Norway's jurisdiction. Uh, they never got any answer to that letter, but of course this caused, this caused activity. What should we do now? And the government then declares sovereignty over the resources in the sea. Uh, we started negotiations with Britain and Denmark, and this person is a very, very central figure in Norwegian oil political history, Jens Evensen. He was a top bureaucrat in the Ministry of Foreign Affairs, and he led the negotiations both with the British and the Danish in the period of June 63 to February 1965. And when I opened by saying that the offshore area is six times bigger than the onshore area in Norway, this man is the reason why. It's as simple as that. 
actually a, a, a novelist in Norway, a famous novelist, wrote a book about 15 years ago where he said in the novel that every household in Norway, they should actually have a picture of this person and share gratitude. Okay, we have come to 65, uh, and Norway makes the first move, uh, the first licensing round. The midline principle had prepared Norway to go forward. Uh, 70, 22 production licenses over 78 blocks. This map is actually quite iconic because it's the first map that was drawn uh, saying something, and now you can see the the, the midline principle between Denmark on the lowest part and to the left, the, the midline principle towards Great Britain. Uh, and as the last bullet point says, the government was very eager to have large oil companies come on because everybody knew that we were fully dependent upon the big oil companies coming to also explore uh, the offshore gas, oil and gas resources in Norway. And then, Elida, we have talked about this. We have a, we have a Middle East connection because uh, Farouk Al-Qasim, the Iraqi petroleum geologist, became a very important person. One of the, as we say, one of the founding fathers in the very early phase in the 60s when the resources were, were assessed and where we did wise decisions on how to go further uh, when the licensing round was, was given out to the oil companies. He was also the first director of the resource management at the Norwegian Petroleum Directorate, which I will come to. So he has played a very important role in developing the, the, the resource management side of Norwegian oil and gas. And I'm jumping a bit into the exhibition now. Just nice to show this picture because we had an anniversary for 50 years since the first licensing round in 2015. And we were able to gather these guys, which were the most important guys, you know, 50 years earlier. And as you see, Farouk Al-Qasim is one of them. And I won't go through them, but uh, also a very important person to the right, Arve Jonsson, who was the first general director of Statoil when Statoil was established in 72. So as a museum, it's, it's very it's, it's very rewarding to be able to invite people like this, who actually was part of this very strategic <laughs> events that took place uh, late 60s and early 70s. Okay, Norway strikes oil in 69. Uh, this is a picture just after the finding is, uh, is cleared. The drilling platform Ocean Viking discovered it. Uh, and to jump into the exhibit a little bit, we have the drill bit, which actually was the drill bit that penetrated the reservoir on that October day in 1969. And then in 71, it took a while before production can start. Phillips Petroleum gives Ecofis the declaration of commerciality. That was the first declaration of commerciality in Norway. And production starts in July at the Gulftide platform in the North Sea. And this is Prime Minister Trygve Bratli, who was Prime Minister in 71, 72. Uh, and this is a, qu a quite famous quote, which, which we have on a, on a tape. We don't have the video, but we have a radio tape of this. Uh, so, of course, in Norwegian, where he says that this day might be the starting point of an historical era, proving to be of great economic importance for Norway. 
And I guess we can say today that he was right. Uh, it's a little bit much text here, but I have to show you this because this is just vital to understand how polit polit politicians in Norway have made very wise decisions. And we won't go into all of these. I've made four of them yellow because those are the most important. But Parliament threw a white paper in 71, already in 71, before anybody knew the magnitude and the importance of the industry. Okay, we had Ecofisk, we knew it was a big field and let's keep going. We were looking for more. But it's quite amazing to look back today and, just, and to see how wise these Ten Commandments were. Just to look at the first one that goes on to natural supervision and control. The fifth one, flaring, which was a, a big problem in many parts of the world, to not to be accepted. The, the seventh, that the state should be involved in all appropriate levels to create an integrated oil community. And of course, the, the eighth, which has also been very important for Norway, to establish a state oil company. And back to the exhibition. Of course, this is, we have them placed predominantly in the exhibitions together with other uh, exhibitions in this area concerning the oil and the economy. Okay, how is, or, how is Norway organized this? Uh, what we call the Norwegian petroleum model, and to put this very simple as I can, is the threefold balance system also established by Parliament already in 1972, just a year after the Ten Commandments. And this was one of the important steps that we're taking after the Ten Commandments. The policymaking, the Norwegian Ministry of Petroleum and Energy, it didn't have that name in 72. In 72, it was the Ministry of Industry, of course, but that's a long story. It's the ministry, the policymaking agency, the resource management, the directorate was established in 72. And of course, Start Oil, also in 72, both of them put to Stavanger, which was the final decision that Stavanger will be the oil capital of Norway and has been enormously important for the city. And then Start Oil in 72 also, which now is Equinor. Uh, just a small parenthesis on, on Equinor, you know, it's just one year ago where Start Oil everybody's company, you know, Startel is my company and our company in Norway. It's a powerful tool. It's a, has been brilliant over the years. Uh, suddenly, now when we come to the ages of climate change and green politics, they decided all of a sudden, one year ago, now we're going to be called Equinor. So that was a big discussion in Norway. And somebody tried to stop it, but, you know, the management got it approved by the ministry, and now it's Equinor. But the main point here, this is the petroleum model of Norway, the threefold, I will call it the power, the balance of power between these agencies. Okay, we go a little bit into what has happened in the sea. We have to mention the Condip technology. Now we come to 75. Uh, we call it a Norwegian invention because it is, even though it was first used at the British sector of barrel, the barrel oil field. Um, and a company called Norwegian Contractors built 13 such platforms over a period of 20 years. And these are dinosaurs. 
They are abandoned technology today, but we have 13 of these standing offshore Norway on, on water levels from 150 up to 300 meters, producing on for a long term. But it's a very important step in the technology development. And just to show you how it looks when, when they're being built, they're being built inshore and they're being floated off and towed out to the sea and the decks installed when it's on its way out. But this is just to show you how Stavanger for this 20-year period was what I would call a birthplace for Kandip constructions. And many people had, had work here, many even young people, you know, you, you have to bring all the cement on, you know, you have to go like this with the cement to put it in the right place. So this was, uh, everybody remembers this era where we built 13 platforms. And then on to accidents, which also the museum deals with. Uh, the Kjellan accident was, uh, was a terrible disaster on the 27th of March, 1980. The Kjellan platform capsized in the North Sea. 123 workers died and 89 was rescued. And it's the worst accident in industrial history in Norway ever. And of course, it made a, a very big impact on all safety regulations thereafter. This is a rather poor picture, but this, this is the, the platform who capsized one of the legs. It had five legs it's down below. One leg broke off and it's turned completely upside down. And this was actually uh, a living quarters for this drilling platform nice by, by side it. So this is a picture taken the day after the accident. Okay, a little bit more about platforms and big fields. Uh, Stature in, uh, in Norway, we call the money machine. <laughs> uh, you can see all three of them. It's uh, been behind the Stature A, B, and C from 1979 to 84. Uh, the most productive field in the North Sea. And the little text below there, the state all takeover from mobile in 84 is actually very important because when Startfield was started up in 79, mobile was the operator, the great American company. And in the beginning, Startoil, our own company, was sitting in the back seat because we didn't have the competence to take the lead. We were dependent upon the big, experienced, rich uh, companies coming from overseas, America mostly, but all of them, all of the big companies uh, are, are present in, on, in Norway. And uh, this man, uh, Arve Jonsen, which I pointed out to you, who has been an important and powerful leader for the Norwegian industry in many years, he claimed that in the contract, there should be an option for Statoil to take over Statfuel after 10 years. And there was a big controversy on that, but he wouldn't give in. And finally, Mobile accepted that because they thought it will never happen. And this is very important. But after 10 years, when we came to 80, when we came, oh, I've, I've said 84, I mean, uh, I mean 94, this is wrong there, because it, it started up in there. But after 10 years, uh, Arve Jonsson decides to go forward with their takeover. And it was a big political debate in Norway, but he won the battle. Uh, the Americans uh, were not happy about that, but they had to accept it because Startoil wanted to go forward with that option. And the fact that Startoil took over Startfjord 
in, in, a, in, in the late 80s is one of the major happenings of how Norway got from the back seat to the front seat when you look at the power balance between the big oil companies coming from abroad and our own Norwegian state oil company. So Statfjord has had a tremendous impact on both the, the organizational side of it and the financial side of it when it comes to the wealth in Norway. And then we also have to mention Troll, the giant. This, what Toal, this is from the tow-out and installation in 1995. It's going to produce for 70 years. And I don't know if it tells you so much, these figures, uh, uh, but my colleague, the engineer, said that you have to put it in there for those people who can understand <laughs> how big it is. But uh, Troll, if you put it next to the Eiffel Tower, it looks like this. Uh, it has a height of 472 meters, 1 million ton, and a depth of 303 meters. So uh, it's really big stuff. And then... If you look at the last 10, 15 years and today, this is the picture of where the industry in Norway goes. Uh, we are finished with the dinosaurs, the Condi constructions. We are to a certain degree also finished with the steel construction, the jackets. We are now into a period where subsea development, production at, on the seabed with templates, you can see them. Just to explain this picture, I guess it's self-explanatory, but you have platforms maybe on a two, three hundred meters of depth. You have pipelines going down. You have production templates on the bottom of the sea. And the, the, the load is carried away either by boat or is taken inshore to facilities inshore, onshore. So flexible solutions. And also uh, this has become a major in export industry for Norway. So the competence which has been developed in Norway, developing these offshore solutions has been a major uh, area for business for Norwegian companies. Actually, one of the biggest areas we have, except to our own oil production. Uh, I also would like to just show you what is on the seabed of the North Sea, and also the, the Norwegian Sea, which is a little bit further north. This is the enormous pipeline system that has been developed over the last 20, 25 years. Uh, it transports gas primarily to Europe. Very little of it goes onshore, but some of it goes onshore for refinery, but more than 90% of the gas goes to export. 25% uh, of uh, Norwegian uh, gas uh, delivers the, the need for, for Europe. And we have almost 9,000 kilometers of large pipelines lying. So, so this is, a, this is a, an enormous infrastructure for the future, of course, and it will last as long as it takes, because these pipelines are robust built, and they will last as long as there are gas left. And also from a, from a geopolitical point of view, on dependency on where, where should the resource come from, you know, Norway plays an enormous important part for delivery of, for, for safe and stable gas deliveries to Europe. Okay, we have to, to dive into some, uh, some diagrams as well. This is uh, plainly the historical production uh, in Norway since it started in 71. You can see a very 
Is there a, could I, could I point with this? Yeah, there we go. Here we go. Uh, you, you saw Equifisk starting here and it takes off quite rapidly. And uh, the green is oil and the red is gas. Uh, NGL in between, but the, the, this picture it really shows us that that the peak oil was around here in you know around 2000, but the gas is also becoming the, maybe the most important petroleum asset of Norwegian production for the future. And as you can also see, this projection goes from to from about, um, goes to 2023. Uh, so there is no tendency at the moment for it to go down but of course if you if you should project this picture another 10 or 20 years it will slowly go down no doubt about that and i said something about 200,000 jobs related to oil and gas in norway uh, these are the direct related jobs and you see it's about 60 60 70,000 when it peaked in 2014 then we had the drop in the oil price, which of course here made a, made a significant impact on many companies in Norway. Now it's picking up again. So this, this curve will slightly float out, I think, uh, in, a, in a rather good direction for the moment. So that was employment. And then... You know, I'm not, a, I'm not an economist um, or a geologist. My background is political science. To, to be accurate on these fiscal instruments, I have a friend of mine who is a professor in, in uh, petroleum uh, economy. Uh, and I asked him, what, if I'm going to make it as simple as possible, what are the fiscal tools for Norway, the fiscal instruments? And of course, it's the petroleum tax revenue, 78%. That's quite a high percentage, but you know, they, they, are, they are extracting a, a natural resource. Of course, they should pay tax, high tax on, on the revenue. Uh, and then it's a very special thing. It's the state's direct financial interest. And I have to use a minute on that because there are no other country in, in the world which use that tool. The state's direct financial interest. And actually, when I wrote my thesis in my master's degree 20 years ago, I wrote about the decision process of establishing the SDFI. And that is plainly that the state goes into Statoil, the state goes into its own company. Statoil were given large percentages of, of the licenses in the North Sea. And the state goes in and it takes about half of it. It takes about, if, if Statoil has 60%, SDFI takes 30, it takes it out. And that means that all the, all the revenue, all the cash flow, and all the expenses, everything goes right into the, you know, the bank account of the state. So that means that when the state oil company has a good revenue, it goes in the, the part in the license, the part that the state is owning itself, goes right into the state. It's kind of a... It's kind of a tax system, of course, but if they didn't do that, they would, they would tax the state oil company, but now they have a 30% cut in the license and they just take it right out. And of course, the last important thing is the Equinor dividend, uh, which now the state owes 67%. Um, but that's not, uh, I said this to explain this figure. 
Because this is vital to understand how the economies function now in Norwegian oil and gas. We started here in uh, 71, you know, not much income at the time. There were some royalties and stuff in the beginning, so let's, let's forget about that now. When you come here, since approximately the year 2000, you see that taxes, the 78% revenue tax, is the big area. And then the net cash flow from SDFI, the green area. That's the proportion in the license. Maybe up to 30, 40% of the license is directly state-owned. So the money goes directly into the bank account for the Norwegian state. And then you see the, the Equinor dividend, which, which fluctuates, which is not so very big. So this is how the economy, the Norwegian economy is, you know, flowed, flowed over with money, to say it simple. And this has, now we come to the petroleum fund. It's a bit technical this, but uh, it's very important to understand how, how Norway has become uh, such a wealthy nation on oil and gas. The, uh, the petroleum fund was established in 1996, and it had a slow buildup. And this is, of course, money coming in and interest revenue gathered from investments that the petroleum fund does all over the world. There are 60 people working full-time in the administration of the Petroleum Fund, spending all their time trying to find good ways of investing our money. 60 people just, just to invest all the money that we earn. And this is uh, actually a, a copy of uh, the net page for which I took a couple of days ago for the investment management of the fund. And the red, I have written myself, but this is a dynamic figure. This is going up and down according to the, to the uh, stock exchange and according to the value of the properties and so on. And as you can see, I translated this into dollars. And that figure, today's value in dollars, is a little bit more than one trillion. It's, it's hard to comprehend. It, it's 202,000 US dollars per inhabitant in Norway today. And what has happened the last 15 years is this. In 2001, government, parliament decided that government spending should be within the 3% rule. So in Norway today, we don't use the income from the oil and gas activities. We put all the income into the fund, all of them into the fund, and we only are allowed to spend 3% to balance the budget. It's a luxury situation, but the, the idea is if you don't spend more than 3%, it will last forever. So this is, as, it's, as it says on the, on the web page, we work to safeguard and build financial wealth for future generations. And we have also put this dynamic figure into the exhibition. So this is a part of the exhibition. I've, I've enlarged it a bit here. So it's the same figure, just to see the pulse of how, how is the petroleum fund developing. And finally, on this economy bit, uh, a little bit about uh, how large the oil money is in the Norwegian economy. 
just look at the numbers, share of GDP, share of state's revenue, approximately 20%, and of course, almost half of the total export value from Norway comes from oil and gas. So, in summary, and this is the oil history summary, Ecofisc, national governance, the 10 oil commandments, strong and stable scientific political institutions, successful fiscal tools through taxation, SDFI and Equinor, high degree of wealth distribution. And in Norway, many people think that, oh, Norway, we must provide 20, 30% of the oil production in the world. No, it's only 2% oil and 3% of gas globally. 200,000 jobs and the petroleum fund for the future generations, according to the 3% rule. So that is, um, that is the Norwegian oil history in short. <laughs> I hope it wasn't too complicated. And then a little bit about what I have here called uh, the museum narrative. I can go through it. Uh, some, of, some of them are pictures, but I'd, I'd like to say something uh, at the start about how we act as an institution in society because we shall both, of course, collect evidence, you know, do the research bit to collect evidence about all the aspects of the petroleum industry, and we should develop exhibitions. Uh, and finally, of course, the ICOM definition of a museum. We are independent, scientific, public, and a non-profit organization. Very important. On this basis, we have made ourselves a vision and some core values. Uh, the vision is to make people interested in this, to, to do things at the museum, make exhibitions, publications, to spread knowledge and experience that create interest and insight. And core values, again, back to the ICOM definition, we should be open and by all means, we should be independent and also proud. And this concept of being proud is, you know, that's, that's a little bit at discussion at the moment because in Norway, I'll come a little bit to that later, but the, the, the whole idea of Norway continuing aggressively to produce oil and gas is under very strong debate now because of climate change. Okay. Nice building. This was the architecture concept that won the competition in the mid-80s mid uh, with a very strong architectural expression, which the architect himself called constructive symbolism. It's the Norwegian bedrock on the back now. It's the open coastal landscape in the, in the exhibitions and the actually three cylinders here are installations at sea. And this is from the other side of the museum. This is the Norwegian bedrock. You know, it's Norwegian rock being covering all of the building. And I just put on some facts here. How, how big is the museum? What we have there? Of course, conference facilities, libraries, cafe. We are 25 people working there now. When we started 20 years ago, we were 12. Now we're 25, so I'm quite happy with that. We had 130,000 visitors in 2018, which is a new record and the same number as people living in Stavanger. But of course, we have a lot of tourists coming here. Um, 
And I should I could have talked a lot about funding because funding is always it's a bit controversial and, and complicated for museums, you know. But um, and when it comes to this issue of sponsors and so on, we have some sponsors, but it's important to say that 50% of the income comes from public funding, the state, the county, and the local municipality. Maybe we can go into that if, if there are questions. And so, just to dwell a little bit on this, which I've called telling the oil and gas story. So this is maybe the, the narrative. Uh, we dwell a lot on the natural history. We try to tell people about the 200 million years of geology which is the reason why we have oil and gas under the seabed, 100 or 300 meters under the ocean in the North Sea. Uh, and we also make a big point of showing them how, how large the resources actually are, together with the Norwegian Petroleum Directorate, which is the management, the national management agency. Uh, and they have fantastic overviews of the resource base. We present that. The technological frontier is the exhibitions on, on technology. We have this, you know, this, this actually part of the exhibition is the, is the factory offshore. There's the driller stack, you know, where the production happens. We have something we call the Black Days, which is, which is concerned of the accidents, especially the big the disaster of Alexander Kjellan in 1980. Uh, we have taken special... Uh, projects up on the North Sea divers. I've spoken a bit about the economy and you've seen something about that. We do a lot now on, on subsea technology and the latest exhibition uh, we have developed now. We made our first exhibition on energy and climate uh, six years ago and a month ago we just took it all away and we are now building up a new one and I will show you a picture of that a little bit later. How am I doing with the time, Nelida? Okay, yeah. Uh, I have now maybe six or seven slides just giving you some images from the exhibition. And I said, geology, this is, geology, this is the, the start of the exhibition. It says, sorry, what was that? Algies, algae become oil. Deep secrets. So this is a kind of an immersive experience you go into and you, you're being, over four minutes, you're being given an experience of how it must have been down there, seeing all the algae coming down and being covered with sand and the ocean going away and the dinosaurs coming and going. So we made a quite remarkable movie of these 200 million years of geology in four minutes. This is an overview saying something about diving bells, uh, tools used by the divers, some models and so on. This is actually the exhibition on the Alexander Kjellan accident. You can see it says the the black days. So we have, we have given that uh, a special attention. Uh, the steel, this object here, it looks very decorated, but it's actually real steel. And it's from the, from the point where the, the leg of the platform was torn off. And it's the, re the reason why the accident happened. And uh, this exhibition uh, means a lot to many people in Stavanger. Because when 123 people dies 
and it's 40 years ago now, there are still many people who had a brother or a father or whatever who was related to this accident. We have models. The museum is popular. This is the Gullfaxi. It's a big, one of the big dinosaurs with uh, concrete uh, legs. Uh, we have young people coming in to do experiments. We have, uh, we have education for ninth graders in, the so in what we call the Newton Room. So it's a part of the, it's a part of the uh, curriculum at school to come to visit us two days every year. We do uh, guided tours. This is a colleague of mine, Alina, showing a young, young group around. And this is the Duller's deck, which we have tried already 20 years ago. We, we, this is a, a driller's cabin. This is a real driller's cabin actually operating at the Ecofisk field in 1970, 75, 76, and it was taken out and we got it and put it into the museum. This is inside the driller's cabin. And of course, we have a special exhibition for kids. This is a, this is a playing ground for kids. This is uh, what we call uh, Little Troll. And we did special, as I told you, we did special uh, investigations on the North Sea divers. Uh, and this is a quite complicated issue in Norway because there has been a lot of controversy around the situation for the divers because in the early phase, in the 70s and the 80s, Many divers risked their lives. Many of them were actually killed. Many got serious health damage after being exposed too much to heavy diving. And uh, the, the parliament actually, in a white paper, asked us as a part of a compensation for the divers to make a history book. So this book you see here was written in the years between 2005 and 2009. And we also made an exhibition on the divers. So we have worked a lot on the difficult side of diving. This is some actually a surrounding movie we, we made where you can participate in a dive and see what happens, what a diver actually do. And the latest project now, I, I told you about Subsea. Uh, this uh, is a new book about 400 pages being released now at, on the UTC, which is a subsea conference in Bergen in June. Uh, we will use this material, uh, we will use this material as, a, as a basis for a new exhibition uh, in 2020-2021. And then finally from the exhibitions, uh, this is under construction. This, I took this picture on Saturday. It opens on May the 7th, and it's only half finished, but uh, this is the introduction to it in English. Um, as you can see, the world as we know it has been stable. It's not stable anymore, and we are now trying to address this. So this is a quite complicated story, and if you look, this area here is about the history of energy. When and how has new sources of energy developed? And at, at, in the end here, you see there are, some, there are some curves going quite high up, and that is the energy demand for the last 50 years. So we are actually trying to make an exhibition saying something important and serious about 
what kind of a situation the world is in today and what could be done about it. And we have tried to balance it so that it's, it's neither, it's neither a, a kind of a, a speech for the green new future or for the oil industry. It's something in between. And we have invited the Minister of Climate and Environment in Norway to come and open it on the 7th of May. So this will be finished on the 7th of May. And this is the last picture, just showing you the Instavanger. This is three weeks ago, one of the school strikes. Now it's, you know, Greta Thunberg. Everybody has heard about Greta Thunberg, I guess. The famous uh, Swedish girl who has put the, the, the young people on fire. And uh, this is Stavanger three weeks ago, where kids in the schools striked for the climate. Okay. Uh, I need five minutes more. <laughs> okay. <laughs> uh, finally, uh, and this is a shorter one, uh, the Industrial Heritage Project. Uh, many of you are researchers and you know about the importance of having good, good documentation, good sources. And uh, our question has been, in many cases, the big stuff which are in the ocean the big platforms and the infrastructure, the projects lying offshore, what can you do about them? Because you can't, you can't keep it in, in, in the museum. So over the last 15 years, we have been working a lot on, on this. And this is Ecofisk again on a, on a tough day. What could we do to preserve industrial heritage for the future? And here we've done a lot of work together with the authorities and the industry. We initiated uh, this project, actually, the oil and gas fields of Norway. We, we carried it out. We worked on it for five, six, seven years. Uh, and it is a complete, when I say NCS, it's the Norwegian continental shelf. So this is a complete overview over all the major installation, oil and gas installations which are put in place in the North Sea and and the, the Norwegian Sea and the Bern Sea. Um, and we are here trying to identify what kind of projects should be documented for the future. So this is our plan for the future. Which projects are we going to work on to do this? And when the plan was uh, published, we had a visit. And, this, uh, and the, the Directorate for Cultural Heritage has been very important together with us because they asked us, they said when the Petroleum Museum came that you should go forward with that kind of projects. And, and the Director General, which is uh, this person here, Jan Holmer, uh, he, he came to Stavanger and we got a helicopter and we were offshore for a day just to see what this is all about in real life. It's myself behind here. <laughs> so uh, this is what we have done. We've done five projects by now. We took Ecofisk first. We've done field called Frigg, Stadfjord, Valhall, and Drogen was finished in, in uh, October last year. And what we do here, it's a contractual collaboration between archive, library, and museum. So all, we look for all sources, all documents, photographs, films, and so on, and we do it together with archives and libraries. This is the content selection of source material, photo film, all what I mentioned. It's being registered. 
we do editorial work, we do publishing on on uh, on internet. We have uh, we have uh, each each of these projects have their own website, and this is how it looks when it's finished. Uh, this is the website, just a picture of it from uh, from Dragen. This is the party we had when Dragen was finished in October last year. So the museum also is a nice place to as a venue for celebrating and uh, being proud of a new project that we have just launched. And, and uh, almost finished now. This is just an idea, which I think is, is quite fun, because can you see the museum here? This is the museum in the city of Stavanger. This is actually a, a picture made by the largest newspaper in Stavanger, Stavanger Aftenblad Evening News. And we have an idea now of maybe taking, this is a drill, this is a real Derrick is a real drill tower from Stadtfjord. And Stadtfjord is going to be pensioned in the three or four or five years. And we have an idea that maybe, is it possible, what we in the in museum industry calls big stuff, is it possible to take that drilling tower as a symbol, as a monument, take it inshore and place it outside the museum. It weighs 350 tons and it's 50 meters high. And we've started this process now, so, and, uh, and I know that it won't be easy to, to do it because we will have a lot of protests. <laughs> but it's fun to work with that. Okay, uh, I'll finish with this in short. You can, I can read it for you. Over the last 50 years, the Norwegian oil and gas activities have been founded on political wise decisions, and it's without comparison the most technological, innovative, and profitable era of the Norwegian industrial history. And to the museum, it reflects this successful story, but also dwells on issues of conflict, accidents, and the uncertain future of the petroleum industry related to the challenge of global warming and climate risk. Okay. You've been listening to a download from the NYU Abu Dhabi Institute. You'll find more information on our website www.nyuad.nyu.edu slash institute.